Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of dealmaking and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and we have come to the final episode of 2022. It has been a very momentous and busy year across the global sports industry, and as we are taping this, we are between the semifinals and the finals of the World Cup, and Chris, you're still in South America. I have been in Argentina the past two weeks. It's been amazing watching the games here with the fans in Argentina and going to sports bars. Can't wait till the game Sunday morning, which again, once this drops, the result will be known, but an amazing matchup between France and Argentina, which I think the whole world will enjoy. So we've got a bit of a special episode this week here that we will be unpacking some of the news of the week. We've got some interesting developments on both men's and women's soccer in North America, a very high profile executive from the media space joining fast growing world of sports investment. And we're going to be unpacking our stories of the year. Both Chris and I have some rankings here of the stories that we thought were the biggest things to happen across the year. So we'll be taking a look at all of that. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Ann Worcester from Major League Pickleball. Close listeners of the podcast know that we've been getting into pickleball a fair amount here on the podcast. And it's one of the fastest growing entities across the industry here. So uh, we're very pleased to have Ann to unpack what's happening across that fast growing sport. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to both take a look at the news of the week and break down our stories of the year. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Ann Worcester, strategic advisor to Major League Pickleball. The property has been a focal point for what has been a meteoric rise for pickleball over the past year with MLP in 2022, bringing in a series of high-profile team owners, including LeBron James, Tom Brady and Kim Kalisters, Kevin Durant, and Einheiser-Busch InBev, among others as well as agreeing to a strategic merger with the Vibe Pickleball League and signing a series of new corporate sponsorships, including a title pact with the United States-based hospitality company Margaritaville. From that robust base of activity, MLP recently announced it will expand to 24 teams for the 2023 season, and it appointed former Goldman Sachs executive Brian Levine as its interim chief executive. Worcester aligned with MLP roughly a year ago following a career spanning more than three decades in and around professional tennis, most notably through a stint as chief executive of the Women's Tennis Association in the 1990s. She also has served in senior leadership roles for Universal Tennis and the Connecticut Open. In her current role with MLP, she advises on a variety of key areas, including investor relations, sponsorship, player relations, and marketing. And welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's so nice to be with you. That was quite a great synopsis to start us off. Perfect. Well, from that professional background of yours, which is quite extensive and accomplished here, what got you excited about this opportunity with Major League Pickleball? Why did you join on with them? Because they promised me 10 hours a week, which never, ever, ever happened. No. Yeah, you know, after I left Universal Tennis, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. And I was always worried, would I ever find something that I was as passionate about as I was with tennis for my whole career? And once I learned more and more about pickleball, I was so impressed with the fervency around the grassroots game. 
And I really have never seen anything grow so meteorically in my career as grassroots interest in tennis, in pickleball. And then when I saw the very unique, innovative MLP, Major League Pickleball format live, I was completely sold that it was a spectator sport. And so here I am, and I'm about to celebrate my one-year anniversary with Major League Pickleball. Well, congratulations on on that anniversary. And, And maybe for the audience, if you could provide a bit of a snapshot of the MLP business model. What are the key revenue streams? Is this structured like many of the other leagues we're familiar with? Give us a sense of how the business works. Oh, sure. So Major League Pickleball, as you know, pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America, assumed to be the world. Major League Pickleball is like the Ryder Cup or the Davis Cup. It's a co-ed team format with an innovative snake draft and signature events throughout the year in a very fan-friendly, made-for-TV format that's super exciting and fun for the best players in the world and for the fans. And it is the probably the only sport in the world where men and women are completely on an equal playing field. They play on the same court, the same amount of time for equal prize money. So we're very, very proud that equality is one of our core values. The founder of Major League Pickleball is Steve Kuhn, who is a visionary, sort of former hedge fund trader. And five years ago, he was one of the first to say pickleball is the next big thing. And he founded this league in 2021, just a year ago, with eight teams I think he rounded up some friends to buy teams initially, and there was just one event in 2021. And then this year, we expanded to three events and 12 teams. And next year, as you started us off with 24 teams, and we'll we'll be playing six different venues across the country. And our current and new owners include... Mark Lazary, who's the for, you know the co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, James Blake, former tennis pro and ESPN broadcaster, Gary Vaynerchuk, the serial entrepreneur and cultural icon, Brene Brown, the famed researcher and professor, Drew Brees, Super Bowl champion, and of course you mentioned up front newer investors in LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Tom Brady, Kim Kleisters. And we're going to be announcing more firepower big names next week when we announce our challenger level owners, the new owners. Well, that's a great segue because I did want to get into these owners in terms of how that process worked. This has been, of course, a, a big source of some of the headlines that you've generated across the industry. But folks like Tom Brady and Kevin Durant and LeBron James, they have offers coming to them every day. They've been doing a number of other things in terms of their business activities. What was that process like to sort of sift through the top of the heap for them and get them not only to sort of return the call, but get them engaged at this level in pickleball? Well, I have never been involved in a team expansion like this coming from tennis, which is an individual sport. So I learned so much from the process, which was led by Steve Kuhn, our founder, and Zubin Mehta, who is the owner of the Mad Drops and uh, is the CEO of Good Alpha, a consumer VC company. And Zubin and the Mad Drops added Drew Brees in July. 
And I think we were all just incredibly excited that Drew Brees had chosen Major League Pickleball, but we were astounded at the reach and the awareness and the excitement around the announcement. And, you know, if even if that announcement reached, I don't know, at least a million eyeballs, if half of 1% of those people picked up a paddle for the first time, what is that, you know, 500,000 new pickleball players. So when we got into this expansion of four new teams to take us from 12 to 16, we knew we were looking for strategic partners who could come in and help us grow the league. So expertise in sponsorship, media, entertainment, branding, marketing. But there is no doubt that the added sort of fairy dust of celebrity names would help us to expand our reach and also help to elevate the brands of our players, which was very, very important to us. And so it was really thanks to Drew Brees' announcement, getting so much awareness and so much reach that we had celebrities coming to us, Eric and Chris. There was no shortage from the get-go. We started, I think, August 1st. And our two first calls were the LeBron group and the Kevin Durant group. It was like an avalanche of interest. And what was really interesting is that the business people in all of these celebrity groups, plus the celebrity, play pickleball personally and are personally passionate about pickleball. And then on top of that, realize the real business opportunity here and economic opportunity if we do this right. So it was an avalanche of interest from the get-go. And then our first announcement being LeBron in September, you can only imagine the avalanche after that. And then I think we announced Tom Brady and then Kevin Durant and then Ann Iser-Bush as our first corporate team owner. We're still getting through our website and through personal contacts, indications of interest to buy a team every single day. I just had a very high profile agent reach out to me about a WNBA player who wants to invest in a team. So it really is a combination of the personal passion and the fact that these investors all play the game and have discovered the joy of pickleball combined with the business, the business opportunity. Well, and talking about playing the game beyond these celebrities, there has been enormous growth in grassroots participation as you alluded to earlier in pickleball. What do you think drove that? Why have we seen such an enormous increase in interest in playing pickleball? And then how does that relate to people being interested in watching other people play, if at all? Well, if you think about it, pickleball meets every consumer need and every consumer want. It's fun. It's social. It's easy to pick up regardless of your athletic ability. There's no income barriers. It's affordable and inexpensive. All ages can play, all genders, all geographies. You can play indoors, outdoors. It's about equality. And again, it's social and it's fun. And the pandemic really created something that we can play in our driveway and teach in our driveway or in a nearby parking lot. And that's why more than a million players picked it up, picked up pickleball during the pandemic. So if you think about it, research says that there's 5 million players today. Those that look at those statistics much more closely, like ball sales and Google searches, say that it's more like 8 million players playing today. 
And so if you extrapolate that out and you assume there's going to be a 30% increase year over year, we're going to get to 40 million pickleball players by 2030. And some people think that's even conservative. So I walk down the street with my Major League Pickleball sweatshirt on and people stop me everywhere I go. And they just want to tell me about their pickleball game yesterday, last night, last week with their mom, with their friend, with their neighbor. It's just the sport for everyone, especially after we were all like indoors and so isolated for two years. It you know, pickleball brings families together, colleagues together. It brings communities together. And, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from or who you voted for. Pickleball just connects people in the most positive, tolerant, accepting way. And I think that's what I love most about it. Um, and then your second question was, how does that relate to who wants to watch it? Is that what you asked? Yeah, absolutely. So there's no doubt that the more people that are playing a sport, are go- there's a direct correlation between the number of people who play a sport and who want to watch the sport. The NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball have this huge following over many decades of growing the sport and all the marketing and all the personalities. And you don't necessarily have to play that sport to want to watch it. But the reason that we've seen this meteoric rise in the interest in pickleball is because this very significant number of recreational players playing. And when the number of recreational players starts to grow, of course, there's more interest in seeing what the best in the world can do. And then you see all these tips and tricks on social media and YouTube and, you know, grassroots players are really trying to emulate and learn from what the best in the world are doing. You know, and they say about pickleball, it's easy to learn, but it's very difficult to master. You know, the dink looks like, you know, real easy shot, but it is so full of finesse and, you know, tennis players come to pickleball and they, you know, it's not about power anymore. It's about finesse, touch and finesse. And that's what makes it even more fun to watch. And I remember a stat from tennis, the International Tennis Federation once came out with a stat that said that 94% of tennis attendees at a tournament, you know, people who buy tickets play the sport. So I think there's definitely a proven correlation between participation and interest in attending live or TV viewership. And I would venture to guess that this would be even more so given the fervency in pickleball at the moment. So whereas, you know, the pro game is in it, you know, still in its infancy. I think the PPA started in 2018, APP in 2019, Major League Pickleball in 2021. That those are, you know, we're only one year old, and the, but the other, the two tours are just a, a few years old. So it's really in its infancy so far. As you are rolling out this expanded schedule for next year and thinking about beyond what is both the short term and long term strategy in terms of the deployment of your competition rights from a media standpoint, both domestically and globally, how are you sort of thinking about selling the rights to this content? So you could just imagine that with all of the exciting news in the past few months in and around Major League Pickleball, celebrity owners, this merger with PPA, there's more interest than ever before in covering our events. 
We are in conversations with all of the major linear and streaming broadcasters who all agree that Major League Pickleball's co-ed team format makes for great TV. It's, it's women's doubles, men's doubles, and mixed doubles. And if you get to 2-2 of those four matches or four games, then it goes to a dream breaker, which is the players playing singles against each other. And depending on the lineup that the teams choose, it's often men and women playing singles against each other. And it results in fist pumping, chest bumping, palpable energy. The teams go crazy. The owners go crazy. The fans go crazy. And when I saw that live in Austin last June, that was when I knew that pro pickleball is very much a spectator sport and that the star of the show is the format itself. And that's the feedback that we're getting from media broadcasters. And we're very lucky because many of our team owners, current and new, have significant leverage and influence with major broadcasters. So they are all leaning in and helping us with those contacts. So we'll probably be announcing our broadcast deal over the next month. And you just signed, I believe this week, a major title sponsorship with Margaritaville. Would you tell us a little bit about that deal to the extent you can? How many years is it? What are the economics if you can? What kind of things do they get? And then as a part of that, why are they such a great partner for you as you think about kind of going forward with with the league? So it's very significant. The Margarita partnership is a title sponsorship over all six events. We will have individual sponsors of each of the six events, but Margaritaville is the new umbrella sponsor for our league. So we're branding the league MLP by Margaritaville, sort of borrowing from Davis Cup by NEC. And the sponsorship is, you know, signage and seats and consumer activations and advertising and all kinds of integrations. But the best part is that they are going to really work with us to create even more of a festival atmosphere in and around our six events because we want to appeal to all fans and have something for everyone. And not everybody wants to be sitting and watching matches all day long. So we're very excited that it's our largest commercial deal. I can't reveal the economics. I can confirm it's seven figures. It's multiple years, and we're very proud to add a world-class partner to our brand and to our on-site experiences for fans and players. And it's interesting, just in the last two weeks, Eric and Chris, we always have a flood of inbound inquiries and interest from sponsors. And again, our owners help us a lot with those leads and those intros, but we are closing more deals than ever before just in the last few weeks. And our chief commercial officer, Bruce Bundrant, tells me that in 2023, Major League Pickleball will have four times the amount of sponsors than in 2022, and that will equate to roughly 10 times increased sponsorship revenues. So four times as many and 10 times the revenue. So that's pretty incredible for such an emerging young sport, don't you think? Absolutely. We've referenced a couple of times this uh, merger that you just did with PPA, their Vibe Pickleball League. It's kind of interesting that in this relative infancy of the sport overall as a spectator entity, historically, you might have expected that 
you would have continued down your individual lane for three to five years. They would have done the same and it wouldn't have been until after you would have really been out in the market competing against each other for some time that some of those obvious benefits of coming together would have become more manifest. What was the sort of rationale for not only doing the merger, but doing it so soon in in each of your relative development? Yeah, I think Harvard Business School case study would not have predicted that it would happen so quickly, right? Right. You know, we had been working quietly with the PPA for months, trying to find a way to work together. And, you know, we talked about, you know, should we get into the traditional pickleball tour, traditional tournament space? They were flirting with getting into the team space. Did they, did we want to promise each other we'd stay in our own lanes? Did we want to partner on either one? And, you know, they were also very, very interested in our sister company, Duper, which is a rating, pickleball rating. So, you know, I think many just didn't think we'd ever really bite the bullet and reach agreement. And just as soon as they came out with their Vibe Team League announcement, we realized this is not in the best interest of our brand, our product. Let's, you know, and Tom Dundon, the head of the PPA, was always he never gave up. He always kept trying to create some sort of a partnership to his credit. So we got the right people at the table and created this merger where Vibe contributes six teams to Major League Pickleball. Major League Pickleball contributes 18 teams and there's shared ownership in a new co. There'll be a new board of directors. And it's very strange. We worked together. We closed the deal, announced it. The teamwork was immediate because we all speak the same language. And then we started having daily standups around players, around planning of our draft reveal show, which took place last night here in Las Vegas. And the teamwork has just been very organic and natural and easy. And I can imagine that we'll probably only increase that teamwork and that synergy as time goes on. It really unifies the pro game, this merger. So MLP is the pro pickleball league and PPA is the pro pickleball tour. And the merger allows MLP to feature the best players, you know, at the biggest events, attract the biggest sponsors, play at the best venues. And it gives us even more leverage for the media deal that we're now negotiating. So, you know, like last night, just being here with these PPA players, you know, I've never met before, you know, Anna Lee Waters, Ben Johns, Catherine Parenteau, Riley Newman, Callie Smith, Tyson McGovern. I'll never, ever forget the MLP players that stuck with us this whole year. But it's really exciting to have an influx of names and faces and seeing all the players together. I think the players are really excited to have the very best competition in team league play. There is another organization out there, the APP, which I believe is somewhat competitive in the way uh, things are currently constructed. Do you think there could ultimately be combination with the APP? Is that something that has kind of crossed your mind or or how, how much more consolidation could there be in the pickleball space? I would like to think so. We know those that we know them very well. They're friends of ours. We spent the whole year trying to explore a partnership with APP as well. And we did partner in certain ways. 
they're very, very strong in the grassroots game. They have a tremendous following and the senior pro pickleball levels. So, yes, I absolutely think there's a ton of potential there. And I just think, again, we got to get the right people to the table and find a way to work together because, you know, there is no doubt that alphabet soup and fragmentation inhibits growth and unification and consolidation fosters growth. And a big, huge reason for our merger with PPA was that the sport needs unification and consolidation. Way too young for of a sport to have all this alphabet soup. So BJ Armitage was here last night, you know, big tennis personality and Prakash, his son, and Ken Solomon from the Tennis Channel. And we talked about this. And it's like if pickleball can really learn from tennis's fragmentation at such a young age and such a young stage in its growth, it will be so much farther along five years from now and 10 years from now. Well, so much obviously happening in and around Major League Pickleball. We're going to be continuing to track all of that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Ann Worcester, their strategic advisor, for spending this time with us. Well, your questions were very interesting, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, and thank you for helping us to grow pickleball outside the United States. Looking forward to more of it. Thank you. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly. And before we get into our uh, year in review, we do want to take a look at some stories that have been breaking this week. It's been a another momentous week as we come to the close of the calendar year and, and almost sort of a final big push in the industry to get some things done. There's been some new financings announced, new sponsorships, new media deals and the like here. Everybody's sort of in that final push to get some work done here before everybody breaks for the holidays. But first and foremost, I had a really important report come out from the National Women's Soccer League. This is an entity, of course, we've talked about a lot this year, a lot happening, a new leadership, a lot of business growth, plans for future expansion and the like. But this entity is still trying to get its arms around prior abuse that happened in and around this league involving several of the clubs, was covered up for a long time. And we've had one independent report that already came out. We've got a even more substantive report that came out with the league and the players union. And really what it detailed is, unfortunately, there was widespread misconduct involving a number of clubs, a number of coaches, and what they described as, quote, a fertile ground to cover up a lot of this uh, abuse of players. So it sort of gives some important benchmarks in terms of what occurred and maybe some signposts of how to move forward here. But curious as to how you see this, Chris, but from my standpoint, this was an, an important early step for a uh, new commissioner, Jessica Berman, to really, if you're really going to grow and try to build this league forward, it was really important to get a full accounting of what occurred before. Yeah, but from my perspective, Eric, this report was really confirmatory of the prior Sally Yates report. It did detail a number of the misconduct uh, situations. It was not a one-off or one bad, bad apple kind of thing. It was really kind of broader in that context. I think that was understood before, but this details that in even greater depth. I think the important thing here is that it was a report put together by both the league and the Players Association arm in arm to kind of find out for sure what happened in the past and then be in a better position to create the infrastructure going forward to avoid these problems. So I think from Jessica's standpoint, I think she's done a good job. She's not only you know made the right kind of public statements apologizing for the past 
transgressions of, of the league, but also really collaborating with the players to make sure there's a great environment going forward. Yeah, so there in that player safety, of course, is first and foremost, and there is a critical governance component to this. But then looking ahead, I think that sends an important message to the market, particularly from a commercial standpoint, whether it be a facility standpoint, civic support for expansion franchises, corporate sponsorships, media rights, on and on the list goes, that it sends an important message to the market that this isn't going to be a sweep under the rug kind of thing, that there is going to be that full accounting and real accountability. And from that perspective, Eric, I think this report and the approach that Jessica is taking is very helpful for the future commercial opportunities of the league. As you alluded to, they're going to be offering new franchises shortly. We're going to see the sale of Chicago and Portland franchises. Ultimately, we're going to see new media deals here, continued work in the sponsorship area. So basically taking a proactive approach, a collaborative approach between the players and the owners, I do think helps continue the momentum of this league. It's a very ironic thing where this league has got more buzz, success, momentum than ever before. And we look at Angel City as a real example of that. Uh, But at the same time, dealing with one of the, the more horrific eras in terms of misconduct and player abuse that we've seen in professional sports. So those two things are on opposite ends, but Jessica seems to be navigating it well. And the Portland franchise in particular is a real sort of concentration of that dichotomy that you've got a situation where they just won the league championship, fantastic club on the field, great local support, but the team is now for sale because, you know, Merritt Paulson, who owned the franchise, he's he's one of those folks who did not do enough in the moment to uh, deal with the abuse that was occurring. The Portland franchise will be a focal point, but I think more broadly, beyond the statements, beyond the reports, It now comes down to what are the mechanisms going forward that are going to ensure safety. So one of the things that came out of this report and really the reporting over the last several months is that a number of women were, in a sense, afraid or concerned about reporting abuses. They they didn't want to have repercussions of that. So there need to be the opportunities for issues to come to light and transparency to be brought on these situations when they happen so that they can be dealt with early on. There needs to be from a hiring standpoint, focus on transparency to make sure that if someone has done something wrong in one market, they just aren't kind of moved on to another market. So it is about the statements, it is about the reports, but it's also about the institutional change now that needs to happen to protect the players going forward. And that's going to be an important thing to really see as the months and years transpire here, how those systemic reforms really take root. And do you really have a situation where you've got proper policies and procedures in place to deal with this, you know, should it unfortunately occur again. And the good news is I think the the major constituents here are committed to that. And also now we've seen the repercussions of if you don't follow the right procedures, what happens? And there is now accountability in a number of these situations. And so I do think there's a bright future ahead for the league commercially and from a player safety standpoint, but there's certainly some work that still needs to be done. Well, turning our attention from women's soccer to men's, we had another noteworthy announcement from Major League Soccer, the premier men's league in in North America, where they obviously did the Big Apple deal earlier this year. And we'll talk about the role of streaming writ large later in the podcast, but they've done a complimentary linear package, set of four-year deals, involving some regular season and postseason content, but also the League's Cup with Liga MX, 
in Mexico, and really sort of maintaining that they still have a linear presence. And first and foremost, among all of that, is this four-year partnership with Fox Sports, where they are not going to be the primary domestic rights holder that obviously now lies with Apple, but there's still a still a linear presence here. And I think it was important for Don Garber and his team to sort of, yes, they want to be influential, they want to look to the future, but the greatest concentration of eyeballs is still on traditional linear television, and to give that up in complete whole cloth was just not going to be a way forward. Yeah, but Eric, from a from an exposure standpoint, I think this is important. As I read the deal, 15 of the games are going to be on Big Fox, the, the primary broadcast yep. network. And I think that is helpful from an eyeball standpoint, especially when you talk about some of the playoffs and championship games. The first thing I thought about when I read the announcement was, why did they do a four-year deal and they did a 10-year deal with Apple? And then I realized, oh, of course, because they want to be shopping the next set of rights in the glow of the U.S. World Right, at, right after 2020 and, and 2026. Yep. So in some ways, this is an important deal, but it's kind of an interim deal as we look from 22 to 26. And, you know, potentially with the excitement that's going to come in 2026, even more opportunities for them at that point in time. Now, the other interesting wrinkle as part of all of this is that this confirms that ESPN is now out as a media partner of the league. And they've been with MLS since the very start in the mid-90s. And there's been a long-running relationship of various flavors over the years. And it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of coverage MLS now gets on SportsCenter and during the dayside studio programming and the like. And, you know, we've seen how transformative having a, an official relationship is, particularly for the NHL, when they didn't have an ESPN relationship and now they do. And there's a new level of focus on that league inside of the, the Bristol operations. And you got Jimmy Patero showing up at board of governors meetings and the like, and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's been an important thing for the NHL. And does that work the other way now for MLS uh, remains to be seen. Well, Eric, that has long been discussed around the ESPN support of, you know, the leagues that are part of their family. It would really be interesting to me, as you mentioned, the NHL situation, if someone would do a study on how many minutes of coverage were brought forward before they were a partner and then after and how big a factor that really is. But I do think it does have it will have some impact on MLS, although I think we're in a world today of greater media fragmentation, greater opportunities to get your messages out and your promotion out. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe SportsCenter was the primary way that highlights were distributed. Now it may be TikTok. So I, I do think it's a, it's as a long as it stays legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, but I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I think this might have been more of a concern. Today, I think there are probably other ways from MLS to get its ancillary programming, its highlights out to fans, especially the next generation of fans beyond necessarily ESPN, although ESPN is still, you know, an 800 pound gorilla in the space. So much more to come on that front, but very interesting to see how MLS continues to reshape its entire media presence and how it goes to market and get in front of its fans. But turning our attention now to another interesting development, more on the financial side, Jeff Zucker, he used to be the president of CNN, senior executive of the former Warner Media before the merger with Discovery, big executive in the space for many, many years. He is now aligned with Jerry Cardinale and Redbird Capital, and there is a new joint venture that 
Redbird has done with another entity called International Media Investments, and Jeff Zucker is going to be heading up this Redbird IMI joint venture, and he's got a uh, billion dollars of committed capital to go out and look for opportunities around the world in media, sports, and entertainment, and this is just yet another entity that we talked about many times. We just had another one uh, on the podcast last week with Manhattan West and Matt Gibbons. The list goes on and on. This is another big one out there, but particularly notable that Jeff Zucker, he's a name that opens doors. He's a noted sportsman, even though he was spent the majority of his career on news side. He's had oversight of sports properties. He was the one at Warner Media approving all of the uh, the checks for new sports rights there prior to the merger. And this is going to be something certainly to watch. Yeah, having someone of Jeff's stature as a sports and media operating executive now running a fund of this size, that is pretty unusual. And I think Jeff brings a a lot of that experience, Eric, that you mentioned. And why that's relevant is not only are there media company deals to be done, not only are there team deals to be done where media is an important driver of valuations and of the team's business. But also we've seen in the last couple of years, private equity starting to buy bundles of media rights or media nucos that are derived from particularly European soccer leagues and different kind of creative deals, kind of hearkening back to what Providence Equity did with MLS and some several years ago, where sort of private equity invests in an entity that controls the media rights of a particular league. And I think we're going to see more of that. And Jeff is going to be really well suited to explore those opportunities. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of opportunities they're able to get themselves into. Because again, there's a lot of money coming into the market. We'll talk about that again shortly here. But this particular set of money and these particular relationships and the kind of access that Jeff and his folks can create, it's really going to be something to watch. It it sure is, Eric. And the other thing that struck me about this deal is the involvement of IMI, International Media Investments. I did not know much about them, frankly, prior to this deal. But IMI is a a private company based in Abu Dhabi. Their mission is to uh, own global media assets. They have a few portfolio companies right now. Uh, One is The National, which is an English language newspaper in Abu Dhabi. They have a piece of Sky News Arabia but this appears to be their biggest kind of foray into the U.S. and more globally into these kinds of deals. And I think it more broadly talks to what we've seen in the last year, especially the involvement of Middle Eastern investors and companies in sports, including Live Golf, including the World Cup being in Qatar. And now more and more companies, when they think about who should I sell myself to, Chinese marketplaces are kind of not all that ripe right now. And there are other issues around other parts of the world, but it seems like there's been some momentum in the Middle East in terms of investing in sports. And just geographically, that almost serves as a bit of a gateway as well to, you know, how a lot of folks in the business also think about Africa as a long-term industry opportunity. You've got this really large and populous continent, a lot of different nations there, and a lot of big opportunity potentially over a 10, 15, 20-year horizon. And you sort of think about that where IMI is located and where that money is and the points that you're making, that not only does that sort of signify the presence of the Middle East as a growing industry force, but maybe thinking about what happens next door in Africa. NBA obviously has a big presence in Africa and that's growing. And again, we've seen the general globalization of sports accelerate, in my opinion, in the last five years. So I do think that will continue. The other thing that I wondered about 
having seen the announcement, was from Redbird's perspective, you know, how does this fit in terms of the portfolio things that they're doing? So, for example, they have deal with the rock around the XFL. Okay, that's one kind of piece of the business. They've got their core fund. They've got this Fenway aggregation of rights. Yep. And now they've got this relationship with Jeff Zucker and IMI. And I do wonder when an opportunity kind of knocks on the door or they knock on somebody else's door, how do they figure out which of these which buckets bucket it goes it, into? It, it, yeah. it, it kind of goes into. Uh, again, it's a it's a good problem to have, to have so many different pockets of money and resources and properties. Yep. But it is something that I wonder whether Jeff will focus on more of a type of deal Whereas within the, the Fenway aggregation, maybe it's something different, but that certainly isn't clear at this point. Well, and something we're going to be continuing to watch here. But as promised here, we want to take a little bit of a broader look back. We usually do look ahead here as we get to the backside of an episode of the podcast here. But as the final episode of 2022, we want to take a bit of a look back in the space and review our our biggest stories that we've been uh, looking at over the course of the year. And we're each going to do a sort of a descending order of our three biggest stories of the year. And Chris, why don't we start with your uh, your number three choice for uh, story of the year? Sure, Eric. My number three choice is, uh, I would call it the rise and fall of crypto and sports. Sort of a year ago at Super Bowl, we saw all of these commercials, including FTX with its Super Bowl ad featuring Larry David, which, by the way, I thought was amazing. You know, fast forward a year, uh, not only are there the issues with FTX, but a number of other crypto companies have had financial challenges. And now we've seen that impact the sports sponsorship area where, you know, the Miami Heat had done a big naming rights deal and, and others. And so that is really a tremendous change that I, I can't think of another one, even the dot com bubble bust. Right. I don't think it rises to this level. And so, you know, now all of this is happening when all this new inventory is available for sports leagues and teams to sell so it really Jersey was a pretty dramatic like yep yeah pretty pretty dramatic event this year yeah it's interesting those of us who have been around the space for a while certainly remember the dot-com bust and everything and there are some similarities as you correctly indicate but people didn't go to jail there weren't indictments really coming out of the dot-com but i mean enron yes but uh, that was a little bit of a different sort of thing but we didn't have that kind of broad schism and lawsuits and players getting entangled with endorsements. And, and the manifestations are just so different with this crypto situation. And you still got a lot of deals out there, a lot of team deals, a lot of other facility deals. And certainly the big thing for, uh, you know, what used to be the Staples Center, now Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles, kind of hanging out there, a number of other deals. You sort of wonder what kind of foundation they're still lying on. Yeah, and less talked about, Eric, is there are some other big deals in the world of esports, like TSM did a $210 million deal with FTX. I mean, that's going to be hard for TSM to replace. I think the Miami Heat is going to be able to replace their naming rights deal. I wouldn't say it's going to be easy, but I think there are a lot of candidates out there. I think there are some properties that are going to be more hurt than others in trying to replace these deals. Well, my number three choice for story of the year, I'm going to give a brief honorable mention to all of the machinations in college sports. We had an expansion of the CFP and UCLA and UC, uh, USC going to the Big Ten, Big Ten and new media rights deal. A lot of change there, but I'm still going to give number three to what's happening in and around Major League Baseball this year. Really uh, very momentous year for this league. They had a bruising 99-day lockout that ended in March. We're able to create a new five-year labor deal with the players, get a full season in, and in that full season, really brought its revenues back up to pre-pandemic levels, a lot of new sponsorship growth, 
And now, as we sort of see with a full season in the new labor deal in the books, we're seeing historic levels of free agent spending. And as we're taping here, more and more deals are getting done. We talked about Aaron Judge at length in last week's episode. But to sort of see that whole sort of fall and re-rise of baseball this year, it was really quite something to see. That, that has been a positive story for baseball. Eric, as you know, I spent uh, time at the NFL during the Tagliabue-Gene-Upshaw era and was really impressed in the way they worked together to grow the game of football, to grow NFL, to grow all revenues. I hope that that kind of spirit of cooperation between the players and the owners can grow within baseball because I think they're going to need it to grow the pie, to continue to build the next generation of fans. Again, that's a different topic than, you know, the payouts to play to free agents and so forth. But I think longer term, a spirit of cooperation is really going to be necessary. And maybe they took the first step this year. Perhaps there's a lot of historical baggage between Major League Baseball and the Players Association that didn't exist in the uh, Upshaw Tagliabue situation you uh, correctly cite. The historical circumstances are a little bit different here, but you make a very good point that uh, we're dealing in a much more competitive landscape in terms of time and intention of consumers, and maybe this was indeed a first step. Well, Eric, my number two uh, biggest story of the year relates a little bit to our conversation about Jeff Zucker. It's really yep. been the dramatic increase of PE, private equity investment in sports. We talked about Redbird, CVC, Sixth Street, others. There just has been an incredible influx. And we've also seen even further modification among league rules like the NBA, which now allows pension funds and other kinds of endowments to invest in addition to private equity. So I would say the number two story for me has been all of this money flowing into sports from institutional investors. And that is a, certainly a happy day for anybody who owns a sports asset. Well, and I think Matt Gibbons, when he was on uh, with us last week from Manhattan West, really uh, summarizes pretty well that the whole ball game has changed, that the valuations have changed, the landscape of the industry has changed, and that mandates a new approach. And and folks like him come and many others coming into the space, as you detail, this is really born out of necessity and then necessity now becoming opportunity. But it's all premised on the entire economic landscape of this business fundamentally changing. It is, Eric, but I think, you know, in some cases, necessity is the issue. In other cases, it's opportunity. I, I would make one uh, sort of prediction for next year, which is I do think the NFL is going to take a very hard look at allowing institutional capital into that ownership group. Don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I think given the prices of some of these teams and what's happened in other leagues, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they took a hard look at it in 2023. Well, and this is a fantastic segue to my number two story of the year. And that's all the historic team sales that we've seen during the course of the year and are continuing to see that we had record-setting transactions earlier this year for Chelsea in the Premier League and the Denver Broncos in the uh, National Football League. And now as we're taping this, we've got teams in every major North American pro league up for sale, a couple in the Premier League at least, uh, on and on elsewhere in Europe and Asia. These are boom times for teams being up for sale and not just uh, volume. We're dealing with record pricing, and we're going to continue to see record pricing. Looking ahead, that's certainly going to see the $5 billion barrier broken and perhaps 6 and 7 and maybe even beyond as well here. These are really unprecedented times. And again, for those of us who've been in and around the space for a long time, you know, we're really playing above the rim now. 
I have to say this has been a surprise to me to see this much activity and these many teams for sale. And Eric, you know, is in my day job, I'm an M&A banker slash advisor. And the story for many years among M&A bankers was hey, there's just not, not enough team sales to do each year. There just aren't enough. There aren't a lot of them out there. Uh, and now the volume and, and the velocity of it is just- You're over your head now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, not necessarily me, but I would say that it really is a year of incredible change and disruption, but also opportunity. Part of it's driven by private equity. Part of it's driven by the, the enormous growth in wealth over the last decade among high net worth people. And then also part of it, frankly, is due to some misconduct in certain circumstances oh, yeah. and, and some circumstances that really force owners to sell. So it's really a combination of those things. Well, something that's uh, going to continue to be manifesting itself, but what was your top story of the year? Number one. Number one, sorry, I hate to be boring because it's pretty obvious, but it is the uh, kind of emergence of Apple and Amazon as really tier one players in the sports media space. Both companies had certainly done deals before in sports media and rights, and particularly Amazon had done more of them. But the Apple 10-year deal with MLS, Amazon NFL deal, the Thursday night audiences that they were able to create and build, really, both of those deals, in my opinion, are game changers. And now we're going to see going forward with Sunday Ticket, NBA rights, and CFP expansion. Again, no disrespect to NASCAR and all the other things that are out there. Those three deals are going to be very interesting to watch because I think for the first time, the traditional broadcasters or media companies are going to have bona fide, intense competition from companies like Apple and Amazon, at least for some of those packages. And I don't think anybody knows what the outcome is going to be. Well, as we talked about a lot during the course of the year, this indeed was the year that these entities started sort of swimming at the deep end of the pool in terms of the rights here and not just picking up some, you know, non-exclusive pieces on the margin, but exclusive tier one inventory. And you correctly indicate MLS and Thursday night football, but also we had a couple of deals with major league baseball slicing off some inventory. You mentioned the other deals coming up and this is, we really had a, a step change here in terms of, again, moving from these ancillary non-exclusive packages to really robust multi-billion dollar, in some cases, tier one exclusive rights. And, and it's born out of a lot of different things. And, and certainly the uh, cord cutting is fundamental key part of that. But also we've got a situation now where, you know, Wi-Fi and, and bandwidth and such is, is now in place to degree to be able to support all of this, that you couldn't technically speaking, you know, three, five years ago, you couldn't have had a situation where this would have been possible because you just didn't have a sufficient proliferation of, uh, you know, high speed bandwidth. Now that's, you know, really everywhere in North America and in many other parts of the world. And, and again, you know, that and a number of other factors here, we, we are now in a whole new realm as it relates to top tier sports rights. And, and this is peripheral, Eric, to another topic that we've talked a lot about this year, which is the overall streaming wars uh, having to do with the paramounts of the world and the Disney pluses yep. and, and all of the other services. And again, everybody is on the one hand <laughs> trying to sign up customers at Peacock with the Olympics, but at the same time trying to figure out how they get to profitability with Apple and Amazon. They also have other kind of commerce businesses or other related businesses that benefit from the flow of audience. And so in some ways it puts them in a very advantaged position versus 
let's say some other streamers that might be only media companies because you know amazon and apple can sell a bunch of other products to these folks so it again it really uh, is uh, in my opinion the story of the year well, my, I, I'll have a close, uh, uh, maybe a uh, competitor here that, uh, my number one story of the year also sort of obvious here is the, uh, the, the battle between live golf and the PGA tour, uh, still playing out, uh, in the courtroom, in the marketplace and so on and so forth here. But again, those of us who've been around the space for a while. You know, we've had challenger leagues in various sports, but we have never seen a situation where you've had a rival entity come up with the kind of backing and steal the kind of top, you know, for lack of a better phrase, uh, recruit the, a lot of the top talent in the way that live golf has and having this situation play itself out in the way that it has to have a, as robust and in your face a challenge to an established entity in a particular sport uh like we, we we've seen with the uh, the live pga battle here this year and again one that's still playing out but it, you really have not had in modern history the kind of uh direct challenge in the way that this is manifested yeah, I think that's right, Eric. I, I mean, I think it's an incredible uh, event from a transformation standpoint. I, I mean, the USFL may have had elements of this, you know, back in the 80s, but I think this is pretty transformative. I think as I look ahead on this particular situation, two things to be watching. Number one is will Liv be able to get a robust media deal, right. which I think is going to be critical to you know, getting beyond just paying some players and, and sort of having some tournaments. So I think that's one thing to watch. And then number two, the bigger picture question is, are there other sports that could potentially be disrupted in a similar way? Tennis, you know, it, is this a, a, a new model, a new paradigm where somebody with huge pockets, again, we've seen the private equity, we've seen the Middle yep. East come in and basically say, you know what, the players should be getting more. We're going to create a new, you know, so I do think there's, there's a number of follow on stories in 2023 that could wind up to be the biggest stories of that year that relate right. to this topic. Absolutely. And I, and I think you really uh, hit the nail on a great point that what I'm also really continuing to watch is will live golf be able to really stand on its own as a commercial entity and, and really sort of become self-sustaining in, in any respect because obviously right now it's in a loss-making mode and, and sort of startup mode as this saudi money has come in to recruit players and stand up the organization but now that that player base has been established they've set a schedule for next year so on and so forth can they bring in that media that sponsorship that gate attendance that really sort of serves as those traditional economic underpinnings and and can live golf really ultimately become self-sustaining because if they can make some major moves in that direction then that feeds into the second point that you made and give confidence to potential uprisings in other sports yeah and i think we have seen some other positive ancillary uh, re results out of this competition which is number one i think we've seen more prize money for players not only in live but in the pga tour which initially said you know they really couldn't compete with live on on, on that front but there has been greater economics for the players, which is in, in, is a good thing. And also we've seen more innovation. We've seen the innovations that Liv has introduced, but also PGA Tour, uh, you know, partnered with Tomorrow Golf, and they're going to be creating some new tech-infused programming. There have been some other innovations. So I think in general, the competition has created some positive outcomes, uh, despite some of the, the sparring in the media and some of the bitterness uh, on both sides.
Well, those are our stories of the year, and that's going to wrap up this episode and this year for uh, Sport Business Finance Weekly. We're going to take a week off for the holidays. I hope you uh, have a chance to really enjoy some time off yourselves with family and friends and and rest and recharge, and uh, we'll be back at it in January. So until then, have a great holiday. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. So again, have a great holiday, and we'll see you in January.